in the um, February issue of um, the Church of Scotland's magazine, Life and Work. Um, There's a letter from a minister about unions of congregations and the corresponding loss of buildings that goes on. And his complaint, um, and it was a complaint, is that the buildings have strong associations for, for people, strong memories. And if their particular building is closed, then the folks won't move to another one, and they'll become what he calls solitary Christians. It seems to me to be a contradiction in terms, but um, <coughs> he, he says they'll become solitary condition, uh, Christians for the rest of their lives, and lose lost to the service of the church. So therefore, we shouldn't do it. How exactly we are supposed to keep open buildings that congregations can't afford to run and can't afford to pay repairs, he, he doesn't say. Somebody else's problem, of course. But the biggest frustration I had with the letter is that he seems to completely misunderstand the nature of the gospel and the nature of the church. He judges the situation according to people's personal links and views and agendas and preferences and so on, which might fit in well with the consumerist society in which we live today, but doesn't fit with the gospel and the Christian faith. For the gospel in the first instance is not about us at all. The faith is not something that somebody has put together so that people can find fulfillment or whatever. Rather, the church is brought into being by God himself. The gospel is the result of what God has done, not what we want or what we have done. And the purpose of life and the purpose of the church is not found by starting with what we want, but what God is about. Jesus said, follow me. He didn't say to people, I'll follow you around and make sure nothing bad happens to you. I'll follow you around and make sure things turn out okay for you. He said, follow me. And it's the interests and the concerns of Jesus and the kingdom of God that take priority. We begin a series today looking, and we will, at the second half of the letter to the Ephesians. And there, the apostle describes some of the issues and the questions that come up as we seek to bring our lives into conformity with God's call. But before we got to the second half of the letter, I wanted to return to these opening verses that Helen read this morning as a reminder of what properly should be our starting point. For among today's rampant individualism in society, we need to remember and accept that life, the world, that's bigger than us. It's bigger than us as individuals. And it's even bigger than whatever groups of people we find ourselves in or choose to associate with. No matter how big that group is or seems, there's others that see it differently. And so, and I'm, and I'm not saying if I was uh, favor one way or the other, but, but I, was, I was consistently annoyed at people saying 17.4 million voted for Brexit as if that was the only thing that happened. Well, 16 point something else didn't. You know, there's, there's two sides to it. Okay, there's a majority, but it's a small majority. 
And we, we consistently hit that kind of thing where people in, in our society are saying, well, I voted for this and I didn't get it. That's not right. Well, that's because somebody else voted for something different. You see, all we can do when we're trying to do some kind of arrangements of society, when we're having some kind of socio-political um, agreements, is try and find some kind of consensus. Try and find something that, that seems to be okay and, and appeal to, to middle ground. But that's not how it's to be with the church. It's not a human society where we say, okay, what is our consensus? It's called into being by God. And the aim and the goals are God's kingdom and God's priorities. Now, in Ephesians chapter 1, in these verses that we read, the apostle is outlining this God-centeredness of faith. The gospel is about God and what he has done. It is a big message with a big purpose and a big scope. And so the whole of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he says, are working together to bring God's plan into being. The plan, verse 11, of him who works out everything in conformity with his will. And in verses 3 to 6, he gives praise to God the Father who chose us. In verses 7 to 12, he gives thanks for the Son who has redeemed us. And in verses 13 and 14, thanks for the Spirit who has sealed us. So he begins, after the greeting of the opening two verses, he begins from the third verse on of saying how God is the source of every blessing that we enjoy. God takes the initiative. And that's underlined by God being the subject of almost every verb that's in these verses. God is the subject. He blessed us, verse 3. Chose us, verse 4. Predestined, verse 5. Has given grace, verse 6. He lavished, verse 8. He made known, verse 9. He purposed, verse 9. He brings unity, verse 10. He works out everything in conformity with his will, verse 11. And and so on. God, 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 God who does this. And we've never quite properly got a hold of the Christian faith if we haven't got that point. It's about God. He does it and it's for his glory. One of the ways, incidentally, I think that we can tell if you've got hold of that is to do a wee check on your prayer life. What, what sort of things do we pray about and pray for? Do we pray about and pray for things to work out for us? Well, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But the primary issue is Things being done according to God's will and God's plan. And so even in the prayer that we know is the Lord's Prayer, which we said this morning, did you notice that before it gets to talking about our need for daily bread and forgiveness and kept away from temptation, yours is the kingdom. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And if our prayer life then is just do a wee kind of check. If prayer life is just about stuff that we find ourselves wrapped up in, then it's quite likely we've, we've not taken on board properly at this point that the gospel is about God. It comes to us from Him. He has done all these things in verses uh, 3 and following. 
He has purpose to make his love known. He has taken the initiative to reach out to us. And of course, that's highlighted, verse 5, in the act of adoption. The person who does the adopting is the one who takes the initiative. He or she is not made to, not forced to. And so it is with God. He chooses to love. We can't say to him, God, um, we deserve better from you, so just, you know, get your act together, pal. We have no business. There is not a God that we can say, um, you need to start doing this or we're going to give you the sack. He adopts. He, he chooses to love. The gospel is God's salvation. And then the apostle talks about how he gives, gives thanks for the, the son who has brought that salvation into being. For God's overreaching purposes, his plan focuses on what he has done for us in and through Jesus. Jesus wasn't just some great character. He wasn't just some hero figure to look up to. He was God come in the flesh. He claimed to be that. And he came announcing and bringing in the kingdom of God. God is taking charge, is what Jesus' message was, because the kingdom, and the kingdom was going to look very different from what people imagined or expected. And why was the kingdom going to look different from what people imagined or what people expected? Well, because none of us have got the full picture. We would think the kingdom ought to be according to what we think is fair, according to what we think is right, according to our preferences. And and none of us have got a big enough perspective, have we? None of us see the the whole thing and the, the big picture. And so the kingdom, if it's from a God who has made all and who is in all and whose purposes are for all, then the kingdom has to be something that takes us by surprise. It has to be something that makes us think again. It has to be something that makes us go, oh, I didn't think, I didn't realize that. I didn't see it that way. Well, no wonder, because we are finite with a limited perspective. Isn't it the case that very often we do things and we don't realize the consequences of the action? Hence all this stuff about people saying these days, you know, um, don't eat this because it'll you know, give you that. And then six months later, actually, you should eat this because it'll make you better. Or don't buy this product because... And then we realize, actually, that there's knock-on effects here. All the time, we, and it's all we can do, all the time, all we can do is, is try and make choices and decisions from what information and what perspective we have. But it's limited. And so the kingdom of God is always going to be other and greater. And that's what Jesus came and brought in. And it was coming about, verse 8, through the grace of God, not through force or dominance. And the celebration of God's grace, which was the theme of this pouring out of thanksgiving and praise, is something that Paul can't do very much of without getting to Jesus and what God has done through Jesus. And so ten times in these 14 verses that Helen read, ten times the apostle says, in Christ or in him, the gospel revolves around Jesus. Later in the service, when we um, confessing faith and the words of the Apostles' Creed, notice that it's that middle section about Jesus that's the biggest section. Now, there's a reason for that. 
That yes, the source of all things is in God and in his plan, but he's worked that out through Jesus. And the question of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done is absolutely central. It's the biggest bit of the faith. And then thirdly, the Holy Spirit's part and place in that salvation. For when we follow Jesus, when he's our Lord and Savior, we are, verse 13, included in this salvation. The adoption isn't something that's going to happen, but something that has taken place. And the life of God and the presence of God is given to us through the Holy Spirit here and now. And so it's not pie in the sky for when you die. It's steak in the plate while you wait. There's a difference now through the presence of God in the here and now. And so the Holy Spirit, verse 14, is a deposit guaranteeing and promising that there is more to come. Now, it's into this plan and purpose of salvation that God calls us. And it's something that's to be real among us when we as individuals and as a church are not kicking against what God is doing, but rather are joining in. There is a bigger story into which our personal experience is to fit and given more meaning. There's a horizon far beyond what we experience firsthand, far beyond our interests and intentions. Nevertheless, there can be times when our individual experience is tough, when things don't work out. And these grand words in Ephesians 1 make us, make us think, wait a minute, what's happening to us? But the apostle knew that. Verse 1 of chapter 3 In verse 1 of chapter 4, both tell us where Paul was writing this letter from. He's in prison. And he's not in prison because he's killed somebody. He's not in prison because he's chucked a brick, brick through somebody's window. He's not in prison because he's stolen some money. He's in prison because he was sharing his faith about Jesus. And surely Paul, of all people, he would then think, well, Even as he's writing these words, might he not be saying to himself, hold on a minute, writing all this stuff about the fantastic great plans of God, the great salvation of God, how everything is going to be brought together in God's kingdom and it's all going to be so perfect. And here am I, just stuck inside. Because he was seeing that even as he was inside, and as he was inside for doing what he was called to do, sharing the the good news of Jesus and of God's kingdom, even while he was experiencing the persecution for that, and Jesus did too, the the work of God was going on, and and, and he could see that, and he knew about that. He He was hearing that and being told that. And even while he was in prison, the fact that he was being a witness there to Jesus was still making all the difference. And what God had shown Paul in terms of the salvation that he tasted from Damascus Road onwards, he was trusting God for what was still to come. And Jesus himself didn't promise that when he said, follow me, he didn't say it will be downhill all the way. When he said, follow me, he didn't say it's going to be a skoosh. He said, it's going to be worth it. Now today, later on in the service, we have someone joining by profession of faith and joining the congregation. When someone joins a church, it's not like joining a society where you pay your fees and you get to take part in whatever activities you're going to enjoy. 
It's to confess that life is not ours. That it's not all about us. That we are not the center of the universe. It's to confess and acknowledge that it's not glory or pleasure for ourselves that matters most, but rather for the Lord. For He, Father, Son, and Spirit is the one who not only created, but who redeems the world and calls us to His kingdom, adopting us into His family as He does so. And it's the recognition that then we are to take part in the family business, then of putting into practice the ways and the lives of the kingdom so that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is being worked out in reality. And so the profession of Christian faith is not a matter of one saying that we believe in God, and that's it. The people who crucified Jesus believed in God. The people who flew the planes into the the Twin Towers in New York, they believed in God. It's not simply to say, I believe in God as if that's enough. Nor is it saying, well, when we we join, we're, we're saying we're a good person. Because salvation is from what God has done, not from what we do. That's all that Paul has mentioned in these verses. That's why, as I said, God was the subject of all these verbs in the sentence. It's God who does this. And also when someone's joined, they're not saying that we think we must be okay because we're a church member. Because the issue is not whether or not we are part of an organization, but whether we hear the call to discipleship, to follow It is following Jesus as he called and commanded that's important. It is to put concern for the glory of God before personal interests. And so verse 6, verse 12, and verse 14 of the passage all speak of things being for the glory of God. And here was, I think, my ultimate frustration with that, that letter that I mentioned at the beginning. It was about personal interest. And nobody was saying what's right for the kingdom of God, what's right for the glory of God, what brings God most honor. It was, if I can't get that, I'm no plain. That's not the gospel. That's not Christianity. And beyond that first realization that I'm not boss of my own life and that the world does not owe me a living, My life is best lived following Jesus. And it's a whole way of life of seeing things, of working things out, so that what matters and the opportunities and responsibilities I have are to serve Him. For all of it is to be done and seen through being in Christ. Ten times in these verses. Through putting Jesus first. Now Paul will go on to a number of these Um, challenges and these issues in the second half of the letter, and we'll be looking at them in coming weeks and looking at them in in our focus groups. They're not always straightforward or simple answers. Life is big. Life is complicated. Life is a mixed up thing. Simple solutions are not true to the nature of life. But as we look and and struggle to understand these these issues and and things that the Apostle is saying in the second half of the letter, is not simply a list of do's and don'ts, 
but an expression of living out the life of Jesus, an expression of what it is to be in the body of Christ. And at the heart of being church, at the heart of any of us being members or part of the church, is the recognition that it's not all about us, but that God is all in all. And that we should be seeking His glory as our aim and priority. Serving Christ, who gave His all for us at Calvary, is the criteria we should use in choosing how to live. Following the lead and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, rather than our own tastes and preferences. And so, as I said, how we pray, what we pray for, why we pray, helps identify what it is that we are really concerned about. But so, too, how we live, what we live for, why we do what we do with our time, our energy, our gifts, our talents, our money, and so on, shows whether or not we've got it. Now, there's a great deal about the church including the letter I mentioned at the outset, that disappoints and that hasn't got it right. And indeed, we don't make that claim about church just as we don't make that claim about ourselves as individuals. We've got it right. No, we haven't. But it is about where the basic choice and the basic instincts and the basic preferences are about whether I please myself or seek to please God, who has done all of this that's outlined in these 14 verses. The God who's not only made but redeemed and will bring to fruition his kingdom and bring that unity that's promised in these verses to all and that fullness of life to all. And so as we hear vows of membership again later on in our service today, We should ask ourselves, have I got it? Has the penny dropped? It's not all about me. The world does not owe me a living. It's not just my tastes and my preferences that matter. Rather, what is for the glory of God? What is for the good and the advancing of his kingdom? Is that what is shown by the things I pray for? Is that what is shown by the things that that I live for? For that is what Jesus meant when he said, follow me. Let us pray.